Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Downrange Podcast. I am Cody, coming at you for episode 15. First, I hope everybody had a happy and healthy holiday season. Nice little break with the family. I know I sure did. Also, December was a very busy month for us at No Laying Up. If you haven't seen Tourist Sauce Michigan, please go back. All videos are up on YouTube now. Amazing experience. Something that we look forward to every year, not only the trip, but the editing process and getting the videos out there and then love seeing the reaction from people. One thing that I've been thinking about is that I think I'm going to have DJ on soon because between the planning process, which surprisingly takes months and months to plan these trips out, to actually going and doing the trip, filming everything all, triaging that footage sorting it out, backing it up each day while on the road, and then coming home and then starting this month-long process of breaking everything out, stringing everything out, editing everything, and then coming up with a plan of how and what each episode is going to look like would be fascinating, and I think everybody can learn something from it. So I'm going to try to get DJ on, talk a little bit about that. Anyway, like I said, if you haven't seen it, get on YouTube give it a watch. On top of all that, in December, I had the opportunity to go down to Miami and get some golf lessons. It's been the first time in a long time that I actually went and saw a swing instructor. This is all part of my goals for 2022. First, most importantly, I got to lose some weight. So I'm sticking to this 22 and 22. If I lose 22 pounds by the end of the year, I think I'm going to be in pretty good shape. Second part of that goal, I want to get better at golf. I want to be able to score and see the ball leaving the club face at the trajectory that I think it should be because I know I used to be able to hit all these shots. So what I did is for a long time, I've been following this guy. He goes by the Dew Sweeper on Instagram, awesome instructor based out of lower Alabama. And I finally decided to send him a message and say, hey, do you have anything opening up? Because I'm ready to take this plunge. So the middle of December, I went down to Miami, spent three days with him. He had an awesome group of guys down there, not only students, but other instructors. Kobe Wayne was there. We did a complete physical diagnostic on me. I got a game plan moving forward. We got a lot of things going on. This is going to continue to be a theme for the rest of the year. These goals, and I want to actually be able to accomplish them. The last thing is that I'm going to practice. I got a net, I got a mat in the garage, it's a little bit chilly right now in North Carolina, I can't wait to go back and be able to hit on a grass range again, but I am going to put in the effort, not only to my body, to my golf swing, but also my mind. So, if you're thinking about this, I hate New Year's resolutions, they never usually work out, that's why this is not a resolution. It's a list of goals. I have them written down. I look at them every day, and we're going to make this better. I'm going to make this body better. I'm going to make this golf swing better, and I want to be able to compete again the way that I know I can. If you guys have any other goals or you want to share your goals for this year, whatever it is, you know where to reach out to me at. It's at Twitter or Instagram, Cody McBride, NLU. Go ahead and send me an email, Cody at NoLayingUp.com. Anyway, on to the podcast. Today's episode is focused on a new golf course that's being built outside of Aiken, South Carolina. 
and it's not the tree farm. We're talking to Nick, the man behind what is going to be Old Barnwell. Old Barnwell is attempting to be different than what normal private golf clubs are, and I think it's something that a lot of other clubs across the world could adapt. He has a fascinating story. It's powerful. It's personal. And I know it's going to resonate with a lot of people. So here's Nick. Enjoy. So first, my name is Nick Schreiber, and uh, I'm developing Old Barnwell, which is a golf club with a mission to bring people together through golf. You know, trying to keep it simple with the mission, but what that really means is trying to create a place that is exceptional in its golf, but also welcoming to people that maybe, you know, it might be their first club, might be their second club, but make it more affordable, make it more welcoming to families, to um, to women, to folks of color, really trying to put our money where our mouth is when it comes to programming um, to help, you know, the community surrounding the course and to supporting, you know, young professionals, female professionals, you know, historically black colleges and universities, all these things that you have an opportunity to do when you've got a facility like a private golf club. And so, yeah, that's the idea behind it. So where are we talking about? So this is in Windsor, South Carolina. It's about 50 minutes from downtown Aiken. I started, <laughs> I started looking for land like three plus years ago and my the parameters were simple. Like I want sand and I want good land movement. I'm not in the golf business, have not never been, you know, I'm an amateur architecture nerd, but I knew that those were two key ingredients. So basically I looked, I live in Charleston, South Carolina. So anywhere within six miles, at some point when I started to find things that looked good, I reached out to Blake Conant, a golf course architect, who had posted something on Golf Club Atlas about some sandy soil in, in Georgia. And so I said, well, I think I, I found some. <laughs> so we got to talk to Brian Schneider. He's in Charleston. And so those guys were nice enough to start looking at some of these sites with me. And of course, the first few sites are like, no, no, you have no idea what you're talking about. You know, these parts are good, but these are the things you need to be thinking about. And sooner or later, um, I found this site and Brian came down and said get it get it quick have you been involved in a project like this before i've been a part of so i'm currently in venture capital and i previously was a co-founding executive at a, at a startup but no no not i mean i had no business doing that job when i was hired to do that job but i had a great ceo or like a really great founder who gave me permission to make mistakes but demanded a lot at the same time. And so I feel like it's a different ball game, but it certainly gave me the confidence to do things I'm not comfortable doing, you know, to just, you just figure it out. Right. And so um, I'm sure that, I, I mean, I know I've, I've made mistakes already and I'm sure I'll make some more uh, moving forward, but you know, so my goal is to basically hire the best people, give them the resources they need to do their job and, and kind of let them, let them go fly <laughs> because as much as I'd like to think I know what I'm doing, I, I don't. So where did the genesis of it kind of start from? I know that you, you know, you're a big golf guy. You're an architect nut. But what made you turn and say the thought of like, I want my own club or I want to be part of developing a club to, well, yeah, I can actually do this? Uh, that's a good question. So where do I begin with this? I mean, I think it's always something... Like it's a dream you have when you're a kid or whatever, you know, uh, I was never very good at golf, but 
just like everybody else drawing golf holes or watching. I mean, I used to, I actually uh, taped Tiger Woods second and third amateur wins on BC. Like I was a nut back then. And so I don't know. I just always loved golf and always wanted to kind of be around it. it was never good enough. Like I didn't even make my high school team despite my best efforts. Uh, but it's just, you know, it's like, I love music too. It's like, I'd always love to be part of the music industry if I could. I tried I, after college, I wrote for a couple of magazines for a year and tried to make that work, but I couldn't. Um, and so now at some point in the last four or five years, I, you know, the company that I'd helped to start was doing really well. Um, we ended up getting purchased by a private equity group and I stuck around for the transition. They, they purchased us and then merged us with one of their portfolio companies. And at this point, you know, I'm married, I've got a young son and I'm not being a great dad. I'm not being a great partner. I'm not, I mean, I, honestly, I wasn't even being that great of an employee to some extent because I was just burned out. I mean, I, I was trying and that manifested itself in, in drinking and, and a drug problem, quite frankly. And so, you know, unlike your previous guests, many of your previous guests who have really, you know, impactful stories of courage and, you know, overcoming serious obstacles, you know, mine, mine's addiction, basically. And so uh, about a little over three years ago, I got clean and sober and you know, I quit my job, uh, spent some time doing some volunteer work around here in Charleston. And, you know, I had to kind of figure out a way to get my life back on track. And so this is a really long way of saying at some point, you know, my wife, Sarah, who's just the best, you know, she said, well, you've always wanted to do this. You know, I'm not going to hold you back. We're in this really, really fortunate position where we could do it. Um, she said, so start looking at me. And I think her thought, which is as usual, smarter than any of my thoughts was, you know, whatever you do next, you've got to do something that you love. And, and she's been the one who's been pushing to really focus on doing something that's good too. Um, she works for a nonprofit. She's an attorney. She works for a nonprofit law firm here in Charleston called Charleston Legal Access. And so she's just one of those people who um, is constantly making me better. And so basically, you know, you know, when I got clean, I really had to refocus my priorities. And at some point it, when I was looking at land, it became real, more real. And then I reached out to Blake and Brian and that got, you know, more real. And and we bought the land and and here we are. And so, but it all comes down to a kind of a reordering of priorities because though I had some success, it certainly didn't make me happy. In fact, I think it made me a, a worse person in some ways. So again, probably more information than you needed. Uh, you know, it's hard because everybody's story is unique and different and you can take little grains and pull on threads from everybody's life experiences and somebody can learn something from it. And I think the hardest thing for a lot of people to do, definitely myself, and I'm sure you're in the same boat, is like admit that what I'm doing right now is not only, it's not good for me, it's not good for my family. And I have this false veil over everything that I am or stand for that I'm trying to project onto the world. But eventually that's going to run its course. Perfect way of saying that. Uh, I've been in the, that bucket before too. And it took my wife as well to be like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> what, like, what do you think you're building towards here? Because you're not doing stuff that's like constructive and making you a better person. You're not making me and yours relationships any better. Mm -hmm. So what, what is all this? And I'm happy again for you sharing your story and saying like, Hey, 
there is something around that corner. You can pull yourself out of it. And I don't know the depths of where you got to in it, but I know for me, it was like at the, at the very bottom, things were not looking up for me, even though I was very successful in my job. I was established as highly decorated and looked at as you can possibly be, had an amazing family and kids and everything. Man, I was an asshole. Uh, I, I can relate. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think about this often. It's, I'm one of eight kids. And so, and I've got a great family. Good Midwest family you come from. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and my parents, uh, thankfully, are still alive. And I've got five sisters and two brothers. And, you know, when you grow up in a house like that, particularly like with old school parents, you know, uh, perception is important. You know, appearance is important. And so, you know, one of the few things that I was really strong at was, and this is probably why I went into sales um, early in my career, is that I could put on a happy face. I could be what people wanted me to be. I was always a people pleaser. And at some point, and it sounds so, I hate, I, gosh, in a previous life, I would hate when people would say stuff like this, but like, I started to believe it, you know, I started to believe what I was selling. And yet at the same time, like I hated myself, I guess if that makes sense. So, I mean, you know, for me making that switch and then, you know, I'm, I'm relatively active in a 12 step program and hearing other people share their stories gives you courage. Right. And just having so much to live for in terms of thinking about like, like you said, it's like, what, what, like, what are you doing? You know, what, 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 what purpose does this serve? And so to, for me to kind of accept that, you know, quite frankly, it wasn't my decision, right? It was something where I thought I was hiding everything pretty good, and, you know, and it just, I just wasn't hiding it as well as I thought it was. And so it kind of came to the forefront of saying, yeah, you, know, you got to figure this out or, or something, you know, going to change. And so though it wasn't easy it was an easy decision to say i'm gonna i'm gonna change i gotta figure this out where does golf come from for you so when i was a kid in the summers i went to a place called uh, door county bailey's harbor in in wisconsin so like northeast of green bay i didn't know there was anything northeast of green bay i know you know what's funny is they call it the cape cod in the midwest i mean it's it's, it's weird it's like kind of like the thumb yeah you know Mich michigan's the mitten but um it's kind of the thumb of wisconsin but it's like the it's like the place that time forgot. It is it's really lovely up there. And my mom, you know, when she was a kid, she'd go up there one week of summer with her family. It was like a big deal for them to be able to rent a house for a week. And at some point, you know, she and my dad decided that that's where they wanted to invest in getting a, a second place. And so, you know, we spent our, our summers there. And so, up until I was thirteen or fourteen, I guess I started working when I was four, fourteen there. But um, she would drop me off at like the local golf course Max Walton Braves which is a dog track and I love it more than anything it's like I think I heard you talking about it and you're kind of a home course it doesn't matter what your home course is or where you learn like it's just got a special spot for you but yeah she would drop me off in the morning and pick me up in the afternoon and and I'd play by myself I'd play with all the old guys you know like the men's league everybody was so nice to me I just loved it and again I wasn't very good and then you know when I started caddying you know before we'd go up there and after we'd get back and so like you know spring into to fall I caddied at some really great clubs. So on Wencia and Old Elm are two clubs that I started caddying at. And when I was in college, I had some internships downtown Chicago that didn't pay. So, you know, I arranged on Mondays, I would caddy at events at, at Shore Eaters, which is another like just remarkable place, which I'm ashamed to say that though I've caddied there a few dozen times, I've never played. Uh, but really? uh, yeah, I know it's crazy. And one of our founding members at Old Barnwell is a member there, and and another one who who may be a founding member is, is also a member there. So, you know, 
people have joked before that you're just you're just building old barnwell so you can play better courses and and <laughs> no that wasn't the intention initially um it's certainly coming to pass i've, I've gotten to play some courses so far that um, have really been great or see some courses that have been really been great so anyway long story short i've just been around the game and it was a great way for me to spend time with my dad a uh, great time spending or you know a great way to spend time with my brothers and my friends and your dad's good for is he the one that that started no, it? it's the opposite Mom? so he so my pops he grew up like he didn't have much growing up and so golf was certainly not in the cards and i think the only few times that he had played golf before my brothers my brothers and i started playing golf was you know work events and i think he like once won the award like they gave him a new set of clubs because he was like by far the worst uh, participant at that work event and I, like, I think he was pretty embarrassed and so it just wasn't something that was really that interesting to him uh, but when my brother and I started playing he was like okay I'll, I'll, I'll figure this out I'll start playing and now of course you know he's 74 and he's obsessed uh, absolutely obsessed and so it just started that way so we kind of got him into it and then really again in the summer it became a way for us to spend a lot of time together it still is you know though I don't live in Chicago anymore most of the time that I spend with my father these days is is on the golf course. Where are they at now? They are in, they're still in the same place that I grew up in. And they spend their winters now in Palm Springs area, Palm Desert, which is great for them, particularly during COVID it's been. Oh yeah, I bet. But he can still play golf and my mom gets to do, uh, you know, after eight kids, she's earned the right to not talk to anybody whenever she doesn't want to, you know? And so yeah. she gets to hang out there in good weather and but they're in a good spot. So what, what did your dad do for a living? My pops was in commercial real estate. So he worked for years uh, at a place in Chicago called J&B. Um, and they started shopping centers. And I think when he went to business school, I think his like thesis was on the tax benefits of real estate investing. Like he found a loophole and I don't know, just it was something that he was, he had dug deep into. And so anyway, so he went to, went to work at JMB um, in Chicago and stayed there until I think 90 or 91. And um, he kind of took a break at that point. And then I don't know when exactly, it was 92 or 93, but he uh, was a co-founder of the real estate group at Blackstone out of New York. And so his deal was, you know, I want to be a part of this, but I don't want to move from Chicago. And 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 they let that happen. And so he he jokes around. He says he was like, you know, for the first few years he was running it, but really he became a third base coach. And you know, he had a great opportunity to work with some really smart, talented young people, including a guy named John Gray, who's I think probably you know next in line to run the you know the Blackstone in its entirety. And so he loved it. He is one of those people that again, because I think he didn't have much growing up, he had a a mission to be successful but somehow at the same time and i think a lot of this has to do with my mom you know he's somebody who you wouldn't really know that he's that successful um he certainly doesn't you know telegraph it or, or put it out there he's a pretty unassuming guy um, and again maybe the midwest thing but i really do think it's my mom because i think my mom is the first to say like oh yeah you're successful well you weren't home at you know six o'clock for dinner so you're not that special right now, you know, you're on, you're in the doghouse. Um, and she's just like, you know, you asked me what my dad did for a living, but really it's like them, they were a team because with eight kids, you know, she had so much on her plate and she supported him in ways that I don't, I don't even understand in terms of the things that he had to do to get where he wanted to be. And 
it's kind of fun to see him now that they're, I mean, he still works, but um, he left Blackstone maybe four or five years ago, um, but he does his own thing now. And I think they're like having the time of their lives. I think they're as happy as they've ever been because to some extent, you know, they were constantly doing their jobs and now they have this time to be together. So they like, they've been married for uh, 1968. So quite a long time. Um, and it's just a pretty impressive model because with eight kids, that many years of marriage, like you're going to run into some roadblocks and they've overcome all of them. Yeah. The, the things that I'm picking up on here big time, is just number one, like work ethic across the board. Doesn't matter what your position in life is. You apply the time, you bust your ass at it. You find something that you're passionate about and you'll come out on top. But just like you said, a lot of that takes time. That takes missed meals. I'm sure missed birthday parties. I'm sure a ton of missed sporting events or whatever else. While your dad's trying to support eight kids. Yeah. yeah. still keep this relationship together. I mean, that's their own fault, though, having eight kids. I, you yeah. know, they're to blame for that. Uh, what I would say yeah, is no, you're it's, right. it's a kind of a, a typical Midwest family. We talk a little bit about, you know, you brought up like, Midwest nice. And that's mm -hmm. kind of what they are as humble as can be. But at the same time, not realizing like success does come at the cost of something. Yeah. And I think it maybe made the moments that you guys had, whether that was golf or anything else. And what I'm also seeing from his business and professional life are like things that you picked up and carried on. And you're like, what an incredible role model for your professional life, seeing that every day. Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny you say that. So I think that I can't speak for my siblings, but unlike him, because he, you know, I'm number six of eight. So when my oldest siblings were growing up, you know, they didn't have much, um, you know, and certainly he wasn't around as much as he was by the time I came around. So I grew up a different in a different kind of environment than my older siblings. So unlike him, I did have, I was given like every opportunity possible when I was a kid, right? And so that work ethic, I could see it, but I could never achieve it. I mean, I still struggle. Like he's also one of those guys that like, I mean, even now, I mean, he's had a few strokes and he like still gets up at 530 in the morning to like, he counts his like workouts religiously on like, uh, you know, like an Excel spreadsheet type thing. So I watched it. I didn't emulate it, quite frankly. I was a decent student, but when it, you know, when faced with uh, challenges, I wasn't very good at that. I kind of folded. Um, and I think in a lot of ways that the, my best attributes are the ones that I learned from my mother, which, you know, talk about Midwest nice. I think she's somebody who truly cares about other people and has always said, it doesn't matter how much money you make, whatever position you have, it, it doesn't matter if you're not a good friend, if you're not a good family member or parent, you know, it doesn't matter. And so that was a pretty important constant reminder that, that we got. And so, yeah, I wish I could say that I was... I took the best attributes of both my parents and you know ran with them but unfortunately i think it took me a while to figure out my own best attribute everybody's got to learn from it <laughs> yeah. right that's the truth that's the truth where'd you go to college at i went to vanderbilt in nashville and how did you end up there that's a good question so i mean the short story is it's the best school i got into you know i was Oh, my, if my wife listens to this, she's going to laugh so hard at this part. So I was a decent student, pretty good student, uh, but I was student council president for four years. So like 
that was like my golden ticket or so I thought to get into all these, you know, fancy schools that I wanted to go to. And I remember I came back from spring break, my senior year in high school and like had all of these rejection letters. Like my, my parents had just stacked them on my bed. And so I went through all of them. I always joke around about how Duke had the best rejection letter. He was like, listen, you are so smart. You are totally deserving of this. We just have too many people that want to go here. It's like, we just don't know what to do. And so, man, I'm, I'm making Vanderbilt sound bad here, but they, I had gotten to know some folks there, you know, when I visited and I think that they were looking for, you know, more leadership oriented folks. And so anyway, I, I somehow got in there and, and that is one of those things where, you know, when you're given an opportunity that maybe you don't deserve, you better run with it. And, and I was able to do that for the most part, I think, and, and learned a ton, had a great experience, you know, just like everybody else, there are things that I wish I could, you know, do over again, but you know, my closest friends, most of them are from Vanderbilt or before. And it was just, again, it was one of those places where, you know, it was either there, um, University of Illinois. And, and I was really grateful that I had the opportunity to go there in Nashville. I mean, it's so different now, but back then it was still a great city. I'm a music junkie and, you know, uh, sure, it's got great country music, but it's got great music all over the place. Yeah, you know, it doesn't matter what type of music like. town. I hate that when people, it are really like, oh, it's just country music there. I'm like, no, you guys don't get it. Every single genre you can possibly think of is there. Exactly. And and if you're willing to like go to the outer reaches, which I think what's surprising is like a lot of kids in college aren't, you can find things that like are totally underground and, and yeah, just new experiences. And so Nashville is a really great, great city to do that stuff. What'd you guys do after that? I'm guessing that's you met you met your wife at Vandy too. Ah, no, actually. So my wife and I were, believe it or not, we were in the same preschool class. Um, so we did not know each other uh, back then. We went to high school together, and so I got to know her in high school. But we didn't start dating until our like late twenties, and so we were we were good friends in high school. But it's funny how that works out. But yeah, so she went to Emory in Atlanta. So I think that you know we're in Charleston now. I think that. Part of that is because we both had experience in the South and really, really enjoyed it. Um, you got sick of snow. So. It's okay. You know, I, I, it's, 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 <laughs> there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, we've been here for seven years almost. And we kind of figured, you know, let's move here. And if we like it, great, we'll stay. If we're not, we'll come back in a couple of years. And I will say that climate, for me, for us, climate has made a huge impact on our quality of life. Yeah, uh, It's really, but then again, I think there are people that, love you know the midwest it loves the you know snow and the cold and they like the four seasons and more power to them so after school where did you kind of set off to sure so i set off to a illustrious career in music journalism um, <laughs> i basically took all my savings i moved to downtown chicago took an unpaid internship at a magazine that no longer exists. It's called Stop Smiling. It really was an awesome magazine. I had no no business being there uh, when I was there. They had just great writers, great editors, great photographers. I learned a ton. And so I basically, I mean, I did everything from transcribing interviews to writing, you know, my own articles and doing interviews. And so I got kind of a, an opportunity to do that and was paid, you know, maybe 50 bucks for like an article that posted online or hundred bucks, 150 bucks for something that was in the magazine. Um, and so then, you know, because I wasn't making any money, I took a job in Denver uh, with Westward, which is like the village, it's owned by Village Voice or used to be. It was like their uh, alternative weekly. And when I got out there, <laughs> 
you know, I'd gotten an apartment and I met with my editor and he's like, so we actually don't have this position available anymore. Um, but you know, you can still freelance. And so here I am, I got this crappy apartment. I have no furniture. I have a futon mattress on the floor, uh, like a table and a computer, no internet. And I'm in, you know, uh, Denver and I have no job. So I'm trying to wait tables. And at some point, my sister, one of my older sisters, Amy, she and her husband uh, live in a place called Hayden, Colorado, which is outside of Steamboat. And so what I would do is I would actually drive the three and a half hours and work at the Hayden airport for three or four days a week and then come back and go to shows in Denver and try to write and do all that stuff. But I was still broke. I had no, I had like, it was really tough. It was one of those things. It's like the, the, the best thing I could have done, but the worst experience at the same time. And at some point I remember my sister came to visit in Denver and I was like, Hey, I got to go grab something from you know the apartment. Don't come up. Like, do not come up. I don't want <laughs> you to see it. And of course, you know, when I'm walking back out the apartment to lock it up, she's right there. And she's like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, this is how you're living. And so she, of course, then told my mother. And then like a week later, this is really sad. A week later, I get a check in the mail for 50 bucks for my mom. And she's like, this is for gas money. Just come home. And I remember just like being like, I had tried so hard to make this work. I mean, but I realized that I'd given it a go and I'd had some really great experiences, got to see some great shows. I was like a festival correspondent for Stop Smiling for a year. So I got to go to like all these great festivals and meet all these fancy, you know, musicians and ask them questions. It was an awesome experience, but it wasn't going to pan out. And so I took that check and cashed it, filled up my tank and, and drove back to Chicago, you know, probably a few days later. And in doing so, I got a regular job before going to grad school. I worked trade show operations at the Merchandise Mart in Chicago, which is was actually a great job, you know, low paying uh, intro to, to real corporate life. But it was uh, a good experience for me. Then business school. Actually, I, I didn't get I didn't go to business school. My dad called it business school light, which, <laughs> you know, you can take that for what it's worth, uh, you know. Um, no, I got my master's in marketing at, at Northwestern. So it's through the journalism program. It's called Integrated Marketing and Communications. And so, yes, I did take some classes through Kellogg, as I like to tell him. But no, my degree is not from Kellogg. Although I will say that having it on my LinkedIn, people don't, they don't look twice. They, they, they just assume that I got an MBA from Northwestern. And uh, who am I to correct that? Exactly. Um, yeah, no. But actually, that was so... Full disclosure, I think that that was, you know, I talk about every opportunity that I was given. You know, my parents paid for my college and they paid for my grad school. Like that is. It's huge. Just, it's huge. And, you know, for me, that gave me, it was like a 18 month program. It gave me the opportunity to learn a bunch and also kind of try to figure it out. Because, you know, I touched on the addiction earlier, but like that addiction began at 18. And so throughout the first, you know, few years after post-college, like I was really floundering. And, and trying to figure out what I was going to do. And so anyway, after that, I, I became a consultant, did that for a few years. And I actually enjoyed it. I had worked with some great clients. I used, uh, it was mostly in pharmaceuticals. And again, learned a lot, but just like every other millennial, I wasn't, you know, I wanted to do more. And there were some really great consultants who had been there a lot longer and had a lot more experience and they were taking up all the good jobs. So I uh, jumped ship and joined a startup that failed within nine months, but those nine months were like so eye-opening because again, to have the opportunity to do things that I hadn't done before that um, really required me to get out of my comfort zone, 
it both built confidence and humbled me at the same time, you know? And then through that is how I got started with uh, a guy named Bip Sandy here, who is uh, the, the, the true founder of a company called High Ground. Um, and I joined uh, there uh, at the beginning and we built this HR tech platform that did performance reviews, employee engagement surveys, employee recognition, not the most uh, compelling stuff, but stuff that's really important uh, for, for companies. And we began small, but grew pretty quickly. And that again was like, the, the first half of that was like the time of my life. You know, I'm a part of this rocket ship. I'm learning so much from everybody around, uh, around me, learning from my own mistakes, having fun too, because it's a, you know, mostly young folks sitting in an office. And even as we grew, you kind of develop these relationships through the hardship because like to some extent in the beginning, you don't know if you're going to get your paycheck, you know, in two weeks. But we're all in it together. Everybody's running. Yeah, exactly. Boat. You know? Exactly. We all, we kind of, we, it's like, we always said, we all signed up for this. We knew what we were getting into. And, and yeah, so then that turned actually, that basically turned into like a, a regular, like a normal job at some point, you know, we got to hundred people and, um, you know, moved into a real office, but did that. And then again, as I mentioned, we, we, we were purchased and, and I kind of went off the deep end. <laughs> I really just, you know, I, I let, uh, yeah, it sounds so stupid to say this, but I let my demons get the best of me. Um, and let the stress get to me and and so that break happened yeah three a little over three years ago did you feel it building over time oh yeah i mean i think in retrospect sure i mean you know i talked about how you begin to believe your own lies like denial like it seems so ridiculous to me like how could you be like a part of these things that happen and then still not believe that they happen, you know, like that doesn't make any sense, but I was in so much denial about the issues that I had and my ability to live the life that I wanted to live and be the person that I wanted to be that, you know, yes, it was escalating for sure. You know, and my bottom kept getting a little bit lower and a little bit lower and a little bit lower. Uh, you know, I'm really grateful that my bottom was where it was and it wasn't any worse, but basically it did kind of come to a head at one point And, and it was, like I said, it was kind of a, an ultimatum of, shape up or ship out. Yeah. It's a, it's a a great road. And, you know, I think you're just obviously just on the next chapter of it, but through all that, from when you were trying to be this music journalism, and by the way, to have an, a real, a couple good journalism degrees and not really putting them to work at all. It's quite impressive. Yeah. You know, there's some things I'm really good at and, Useless information is, is one of those things. <laughs> no. So through school, you know, from Denver back to Chicago, was golf still playing a role in your life? No, I would go on uh, one trip a year. So I got access to a few great courses each year because we went on this trip. So it'd be my, my pops, my brothers, some of his friends and their, their kids. And so like one year we did the Scotland trip. I was 16. But in my early 20s, I stopped playing for a while, in part because I couldn't afford it. And also because, I don't know, I just didn't, it just kind of lost its appeal to me. I had a bad temper growing up and yeah, uh, it just wasn't that much fun. And so it was through those annual trips when we got to play these you know, fantastic courses, it was kind of like, oh, this is, this is pretty sweet. And, and though it's not my favorite course in the world, I do remember playing Sabonic um, on Long Island. And thinking to myself, some of those greens are just wild. And it really kind of got me 
thinking about architecture in a way that I never really thought about it, right? And so kind of like uh, like an Andy Johnson sort of way. Um, and though the the Friday <laughs> the Friday has since expanded my horizons quite substantially. You know, and so at that point, I think I became a lot more interested in just playing for the sake of playing and walking the course and seeing the course. Um, and it became much more of a treat, you know, so I really kind of picked up again in the, my late twenties, uh, trying to play a few times And Chicago is hard, right. Um, you know, played a few times a year. Um, and then when we moved to Charleston, I started playing a lot and it was awesome. It was great. What was Charleston golf to you when you first got there? I mean, low country golf is really interesting. And I, how do I say this? So I played at a place called Wild Dudes, which was Fazio's first course, I think, solo course. It's like one of the first like golf resorts, uh, late 70s or early 80s. And there are two courses there, one of which the Lynx is really great. It's like, it's maybe a little bit too expensive these days, but like, it's a really great place. And if you're staying at the resort there, it's it's affordable. But like, you know, Kiowa, the ocean course, I've played there a couple of times. It's a great place to play a couple of times. I don't know if I could do that every day. It's too much. But, and I, you know, I hope that I'm not offending any advertisers, but I think the rest of the courses at Kiowa are, are kind of not so great. I think they're way overpriced and um, not talking about the private club there, which is, they've got two really nice courses, but, and then all the other courses in the area, like have waiting lists through, you know, 2050. So I, I've had a chance to play at Yamens, which is outstanding. I've had a chance to play at Country Club of Charleston, which is less outstanding, but more outstanding when considered the land that they were given. I mean, it is flat um, as can be. And then Bulls Bay. Um, I think Mike Strands is having a nice kind of renaissance here on social media. Um, I actually think I love Tobacco Road for all the reasons that people love it or hate it. I think that like just the fact that it is as crazy as it is and still pretty playable um, is just fantastic and i think bulls bay is kind of like i think it's his masterpiece i have that said i haven't played the shore course at monterey uh there's, there's not country not club. a lot of strands left in that thing so you're not missing much. really uh, all right so i mean there you go i think that you know for for me seeing bulls bay it was it was really interesting because that's a course that wasn't always in the best condition but when it was when it was playing when firm and fast, when it was playing the way it was supposed to, it, it's like so much fun. And it's, it's, it's just a great course. Uh, I mean, so long story short, again, sorry, I just rambled when you asked me questions, but um, I think that low country golf here in Charleston could be better. I think that, you know, the municipal course is such a huge addition since they redid it. I mean, it was already a huge element in Charleston golf, but when they redid it and, you know, made it so much more wild and, and talk about uh, bringing in like architectural interest into it. You know, Troy Miller did a fantastic job. And in fact, when they were doing construction on that, um, my family and I, we'd go there, you could walk it on Sundays when they were doing it. And to see that process unfold was really great. So I, I wish there was more of that, but you know, it's, a, it's, it's only getting more expensive uh, to live here. And so I think uh, Patriots Point is another public course that's, been very good to you know we go there and hit balls um we live pretty close by and i think i'm pretty sure that a developer bought it and is connecting it to resort but i do think that troy miller is going to be redoing that course yeah. as well but 
my guess is, I have nothing to back this up. My guess is that it turns into a, a much more expensive resort course as opposed to the family-friendly, affordable course that it is now. So over time, you've you've filled kind of your golf bucket up with these amazing, very historic and very architecturally sound courses that you grew up with in Chicago. Not always playing them, but being able to walk them as a caddy, see them, talk to them. You touched on Sabonic, you touched on going to Scotland, obviously seeing the old course, but like there's so much more besides that that's like amazing, amazing work on this dirt that they have out there. And then you get down to Charleston and, you know, you you discussed a little bit of the Rainers and then what Troy's done, which is an incredible project, being that it's a city-ran project that they are able to get that yeah. across. Your bucket has an incredible mix of what you see as great golf and what great golf architecture can be. And then connected, like you said, at the beginning with the guys that you were able to, to put old Barnwell together. So what is this place going to look like? What is it going to be? And I'm not asking for a comp because I hate comps because everything has their own personalities. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a really good question. And the reason that I hired Blake and Brian, and honestly, there was never any other option for me. You know, one of the fun things, there's going to be two courses at Old Barmall. And so when I talked to them about doing the first course, but kind of hinted that maybe I'd hire somebody else to do the second course, um, they came back and they said, Nick, have you, um, have you ever heard of a private course that has 36 holes that was better when a second architect did the second 18? And I'm thinking like, okay, so LA Country Club, nope. Uh, Ridgewood, nope. Uh, Wingfoot, nope. Like, so they clearly had thought through how they were going to respond to this. And, and we kind of talked about it. And, and the more I thought about it, the better it became. Because these are guys that believe in the mission that I'm trying to, to, to put forward. They're unbelievable at what they do. They're hilarious with each other. So like I joke around and being on a text chain with them is like, they're completely, they're golf nerds. So we'll, we'll see, you know, they'll send black and white pictures of, you know, that huge green at Sitwell. Um, and they'll also be like making your mom jokes. Like, it's just like, it's hilarious. And so I get to be a fly on the wall for that. But what is the course going to look like? Well, there's a lot of elevation change. So, you know, in the end, there's 575 acres at Old Barnwell. And so for the first course, it's going to be mostly running along a really large valley. Um, and I think the, the elevation change in that valley is probably 75 feet top to bottom. Throughout the whole property, it's about 120 feet. And so what we're trying to do is take what we are trying to do, what they're trying to do. Because um, basically, I said when I hired them, it's like, you know, I, I wash my hands of this. This is yours. I want you to have fun with it. And so I've gotten to be a part of that uh, process and kind of walk different routings. But really, the idea is to really make it as challenging as we want it to be, for sure, but also to make it so that, you know, somebody who's new to golf or maybe isn't uh, quite, you know, at the 20 handicap or 25 handicap yet, that they can still get around. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be some some really tough holes, but how do you kind of challenge, you know, it's that age-old question of how do you challenge the best players while making it forgiving for, you know, the not-so-great players? And so what is it going to look like? The valley, we've cleared the entire valley. So there are five or six holes that are going to be completely open with the clubhouse looking over it. 
Um, and then you wind into some forest, uh, forested area, you know, huge pines, and then back into some prairie kind of portion where it's a little bit flatter, but kind of three distinct parts of the core. And we start shaping actually in a couple of weeks. And so your guess is as good as mine as to what the finished product is going to look like. Because the first time that I went out there with Brian, he was like, we were walking through this dense, dense forest. And he's like, oh, this right here, this is a good green site. And I was like, yeah, t- totally. <laughs> you know, why do you think it's a great green site? <laughs> so where, where is this green I, site again? Because I can't really <laughs> see it. They, honestly, it's like it, their ability to see stuff. And yeah, we have like, you know, a great topo map, but like their ability to see it is really, really impressive. And then once we cleared these trees in the valley, it's so much fun to like actually see the ripples. Cause like the valley was mostly young, younger trees. So like 10 to 15 year pines. Um, so not the towering ones that you see, um, you know, at Pinehurst, for example. But it was really hard to get a sense of like these promontories that come out or like, you know, the elevation change is so much more subtle, even in the valley where it's dramatic. So, and they knew all this. They like, they could see it when I certainly could not. And so once the, the trees got cleared, you really get a better sense of when I'm walking the routing now, you know, I'm out there once or twice a week. It's, it's like so much fun. Like the 16 green right now is like where I'm spending a lot of my time. Just like it's a downhill shot and it's like, oh, wow, this is this is really something. This is going to be great. So I'm just like, I honestly, like this is, I talk about how fortunate I've been, how lucky I've been. And that extends every area of my life. And right now I'm like having the time of my life. I'm working hard, you know, I'm still working uh, my day job, but this is increasingly taking up time, but it's like the best, the best time I can have because I get to do things like walk the 16th hole and imagine what it's going to look like. Yeah. It's incredible. And just like you said, like, two awesome guys who are finally getting their true shot to their stamp yeah. on something. Yeah. And, but you know, it's funny is that like, I, I'm sure that there is an element of that for them. That was certainly like, I thought that there'd be motivation there, but like, you'd never know it with them. I mean, I think Brian's been a part of so many high profile projects over the years working for Doak and, and Blake has been a part of some really big profile projects. I mean, I think he basically ran, the restoration of um, uh, Perry Maxwell's course, um, the first course that he did in Oklahoma this summer, and, and and Brian's been one of the you know leaders on the ground at the at the Lido. But I don't think that like their ego is what drives them. Like I don't think that having their name on it is is really that important. I think it's more about what can we do. And I think to some extent we've talked about this before with them. You know, the second course. I think gets them as excited, if not more excited, because the second course is going to be quirky. Like, and I've said to them, I don't care if it's 12 holes, 18 holes, 15 holes, we've got all this land. It's, this is like the really, a lot of elevation change. I want you to make it as fun as possible. I don't care if, you know, if it's 18 holes and 5,500 yards, I do not care. Just find the most fun greens and, and make it so that families can go out there and have a blast. And they get so excited thinking about the ways that they can get creative. And so for them to put their name on it, I think it's important, surely, just like it is for anybody in their profession to be recognized for the work that they do. And at the same time, I think if they didn't get name recognition, they would probably still do this stuff. They're just really that good at it and that passionate about it. You find the land, you get the, the architects, you get a design and your routing going. But how are you putting this all together? Because I, I doubt like 
you're not doing this all by yourself, are you? Um, I am actually. There's a founding member out of uh, Charlotte named Izzy Daywood who's also participating as well. But for the most part, it's it's me um, and my wife. And that's both plans and ambitions, but also financing it. Correct. That's incredible. But again, it's incredible, except for the fact that we're just in this really lucky, lucky position to be able to do it. Right. And so, and to some extent, you know, I've talked about this before too, but if I had my druthers, this would be a great public access course. However, as I kind of have gone along and as, you know, my budget has ballooned, you know, it became pretty clear that a public course, there are a few things, you know, one, a public course, it takes a lot longer to get your money back, you know, without getting initiation fees and, and regular dues, there's so much more risk. Two, for a public course to be successful, you've probably got to be near a bigger city. And if you're near a bigger city, that land's going to cost a lot more than, you know, 575 acres in Windsor, South Carolina. And then next, if we did do a public course there, you know, Aiken Golf Club is right down the road and it is an outstanding public golf course. Yeah, it's, And we'd it's be taking away business. Yeah, it's, it's like, to me, we need more of those around the country and not two of them right next to each other. Like you need to spread them out, spread the love a little bit like the, the Muni in Charleston. There's another good example of that. And so, you know, those challenges, you know, are pretty apparent. And, and I would also say that I think that when we talk about accessibility in golf and we talk about the benefits of, you know, we, we talk about this, like, like we mean it, but I don't know if everybody does, but it's like, this is a place where you can learn so much as a kid, you know, you learn discipline, you know, whether you're a caddy or a player or whatever, you know, you learn respect, you learn honesty that that really happens. And as, as an adult, I should say you learn it or you don't, but you know, we, we, we know who does and who doesn't. Right. But also as an adult, and I didn't really fully experience this until you know, probably seven years ago, but man, the, the benefits that it provides professionally are unbelievable. And the connections that you can make and the friends that you make. I mean, I, there's a, uh, I, I don't know if you know him personally, but Luke Boatwright um, is a, a guy who's, I know part of the no laying up community. And so I've gotten to meet him. He's been on site a bunch of times at Old Barnwell. Here's a guy who I got to meet through golf who is just awesome. You know, like somebody who I like, I want to be friends with, right? Yep. And so golf, golf, golf wise, professional wise, you name it. Like somebody who's like a, a true joy and pleasure because he enriches, he enriches yeah, my life. Is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so like, to me, that's the part that, so it's a long way of saying that, I think that private golf has a role to play in accessibility. It has a role to play in providing those opportunities. And I think that for so many people, and I'll use my wife as an example. So she was, she's an attorney. She was at one of those fancy firms in Chicago. And of course, partners are playing on the weekends together, but she's not invited. And so I remember she and a bunch of her friends at the firm took lessons at the diversity driving range, which if you've ever been, it's, it's a hilarious place to be. And I think that they're, <laughs> their teacher he missed a couple lessons i think uh he and i shared some some traits around drinking i think uh you know i don't know if he was the best teacher uh, of all time but they had a blast doing it but that's kind of you know that's where it ended right because they didn't want to go play they were embarrassed about playing and so like we talk about how this in, in, in influences the design like you don't want the first tee to be right in front of the clubhouse because people who aren't very good are going to be like terrified right right but so you know now I think that there are so many great organizations. So for the ladies is one, I think about, 
you know, first tee obviously has done so much great work and, and Harold Varner is um, among many Kamayo Johnson. Like there's so many people that are doing really great work around creating more accessibility for folks of color, for, for women. And so why can't a private club do the same thing? You know? And I think that people think this is political and it's not, it's, it's not about politics. It's about people. You want to get as many Luke's as you can get, right. And to be a part of your club. And you want to get as many, my wife's name is Sarah. I want to get as many Sarah's as I can find. You know, I want to get as many people who are just good people that want to play the game. And I love it if we could make it so that people who wouldn't normally think about this as a, a good investment, see it as affordable and as something that would really enrich their lives and their children's lives and can help them make new connections, both in business and in life. I mean, I, I just, having had the opportunity to play so many great private clubs, I don't understand why we can't make those types of courses available to everybody, you know, and to do so in a way that creates a community. And so that sounds, you know, oxymoronic and it kind of is right. You know, uh, an inclusive private club, but that's what we're trying to do. And I think in addition, there are ways that you can allow for public access play, or for me, it's like creating community opportunities, um, around public play, uh, partnering with, you know, colleges and, um, and other schools to, to, to provide clinics and lessons and, and, and all this stuff. I mean, there's so many ways that you can build something that's a bit different than what's out there. And that's really great. I mean, so my, my goal, my number one goal is to build an unbelievable golf experience. And because I think that you can't fulfill the mission if you don't create something that's outstanding. And so when I say it's my goal to build something, my goal is to, to hire the right people to build something that's outstanding. <laughs> And, and I, I'm, I really feel like I've done that. Um, I've gotten so lucky with Brian and Blake. They are just, I can't speak enough good things about them. And then uh, Morgan Purvis is a, a Naked native who's a guy who's been, uh, he's like our director of partnership. So he's helping me understand getting connected with people in Aiken, um, in Aiken County, and really trying to think about ways that we could be active in the community in a way that's helpful, not just like, hey, we want to help. Like, let us, you know. I don't know. Like, you know, we, we have to be thoughtful about how we do this. And, and if I've learned anything in these last, you know, 18 months, the kindness of strangers in the game of golf is pretty remarkable. And so the people that I've gotten to meet and the people who've given me advice and some guidance along the way, it's been really remarkable. And, you know, Kaylin Anderson is the head coach of the women's team at, at University of South Carolina, what we call USC down here. I know that some of your listeners might say, well, that's not. That's not USC, but USC. And they've got, they've got a great golf program there. And so she's been the one, you know, she, we've, I've only spoken to her a few times, but she's been helping me kind of, we're going to create this program for aspiring LPGA pros where we provide them housing and they can, um, for a full year, they get access to old Barnwell. The only caveat is, you know, we want them to shadow different people around the club so they can get a sense of the different roles within the golf club, because, you know, if touring doesn't work out, we want to make sure that if they want to stay in the game of golf, they'll be able to do that. And so, and so, yeah, it's just, so it's like ideas like that, that I'd love to claim as my own that have come from other people who've been so kind with their time. Uh, it's those things I think are going to, you know, I'd like to think that are going to make old Barnwell really, really special. No, I completely agree. And, and agree with your mentality on private club and that it can provide a lot more and for, a long time for some reason i think people think back to the old school private very stuffy clubs of if you're not a part of you know don't even think about ever yeah. coming here studying 
foot on these hollowed grounds. But that's not how I view that anymore. I I think golf, and just like you said, there's a, there's so many people that are out there in the golf world that are members of phenomenal clubs that just want to show off yeah. what they're a part of. Yep. And there's so many other things. And at the beginning, we we're talking a little bit about Diamond Creek and Congaree and similar values that they have going on with the Congaree Foundation. Yep. That are incredible influences and kind of are showing the way that private golf can be done. Yeah. Uh, Congaree is a great example of the kindness of strangers. Um, Tom Kraft, who's the director of golf there, I was introduced to him. Um, and so he hosted me and Morgan on site there. We got to play. We got to hear a little bit about their programming. And man, it's, it is a template. I mean, if you think about some of the things that they're doing, and I think they're learning as they go along, just like we're going to you know, learn as we go along. But the, the stuff that they're doing is really fantastic. Now, the course that they have there is you know, pretty, pretty darn great as well. But honestly, I think that you know, if you put those same people on a different course, they'd still be doing just as much good. I mean, it's really, it's just a great group of people there. Um, and so, again, I, what, what, what business do I have playing at Congaree? Um, but there, but for the grace of Tom Kraft, go I in that, in that realm. Um, he's a great, he's young. He's like 31 or 32 and he's the director of golf there. It's like, he's, he's awesome. So this isn't uh, the only private club that's going in around Aiken either. Correct. You obviously know that we're very familiar with Zach and everything that's going on at the tree farm and kind of just unique timing, how it all is working. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's funny because I went to high school with Andy Johnson's older sister. So we grew up a uh, town away from each other. And so at some point when I was, cause again, I'd been searching in Georgia and South Carolina and North Carolina. And when we found this land and Brian said, you got it, you got to get it. I reached out to Andy and said, can you give me Zach's contact info? And so talk about the kindness of strangers. Is that like, there could not be a nicer person. Also somebody who's like so obsessed with good golf. Like it's, Oh uh, yeah. He, he's just, yeah. So I, I reached out to him and he's like, well, I wish that, you know, I'd, I'd known you, you know, a, a year ago when we were you know, getting the tree farm off the ground. But honestly, I think that what they're building is, I mean, have you been on site there? Oh yeah. So that land is outstanding. Obviously Kai Golby is the man. I think he and Brian and Blake are like all, they're all good buddies. And obviously, you know, Tom Doak's work speaks for itself. So what they're building is is unbelievable. It's going to be, I mean, the picture is following Zach is like one of the treats uh, of Instagram. So I think what they're building is just, it's going to be remarkable and it's going to be, I don't want to put any superlatives on it because I don't want, I want it to be what they want it to be. And I think it's, it's going to be exactly that. I mean, and if, if Zach has his way, I'm sure it's going to be as good as anything out there. I think what we're trying to do is build something fantastic too, just different, you know, obviously we've got a, a bit of a different program in terms of like the, the membership uh, approach, but I think that, man, would, I would love to be a part of the tree farm. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, I've said to Zach before, I'm like, you know, if you, if you need any extra members, just let me know. I'd be happy to, I'd be happy to, you know, throw down. <laughs> but so, yeah, but so, you know, I've, I've talked to him a few times in this process. Couldn't be nicer. Um, they've obviously got a great team of guys uh, over there. and I'm looking forward to it. I think that, you know, Aiken's such a great spot and it's got such a remarkable sporting heritage there that I had no, I, I really didn't know much about it, but 
the history that it has. And, you know, obviously with Palmetto there, Aiken Golf Club, and now Sage Valley and, and, and the tree farm and Old Barnwell, I think that, I think that we, we can really bring some people down to a great place and introduce them to a really wonderful part of the country and, and help them play some great golf. For sure. And I think, you know, the biggest thing there is like all boats rise. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to think so, right? And it's one of those things where like, like Brian and Blake, because I think, I mean, I think some of Blake's first jobs were with Kai. And so I, I you know, I don't know Kai, but I know that Brian and Blake are like rooting him on as best they can while they're doing the work that they're doing, right? So I, I do think that it's a, a rising tide raises all ships scenario. Timeline-wise here, what are we looking at? Sure. So we start shaping this month. Um, we've done most of the cle- uh, tree clearing. Um, we've got clubhouse and lodge design being finalized this month. Um, and so so much of this depends on grassing, right? So we're not going to be moving a lot of dirt. Um, the land's pretty good as is. You know, most of the dirt that we're going to be moving, I think, is kind of to make it more walkable. So to fill in some of that valley, we'll have some pedestrian bridges as well. But you know, if we can get grass in pretty soon and, and finish up by September 1st or September 15th, and depending on the grass that we choose, um, you know, we could be, you know, grown in and ready for preview play spring of 2023. I would like to say a lot can happen between now and then, but I'd like to say that we'll be open June 1st of 2023. And I think that at least, I mean, <laughs> what, what, what do you guys say on uh, the podcast? Uh, the supply chain choke points. Yeah. The choke points. Thank you. Yes. Um, so I think that like the clubhouse and the lodge should be done by that time as well, but with so much beyond your control, you know, that's one thing, again, I'll bring up the 12 steps, you know, say what you will about them, but, uh, I've certainly gotten better at seeding control, <laughs> uh, over things that I, I certainly can't influence, uh, to, to something greater than me, right? So, like, I, I, I certainly can't control the, the supply chain right now. And if that happens, it happens. But all I can do is make sure that the people that I've hired that are on the ground have all the resources that they need to do what they do best. It's going to be a special place. I wish you nothing but the best. Well, thank you, Conley. I really appreciate uh, having the opportunity to come on here and get to know you a little bit. It's been it's been fun getting to know you, uh, you know, via podcast. But uh, this is great. So. Uh, I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Thank you. No, absolutely. And if people want to know more, they want to follow along at Old Barnwell, both on Twitter and Instagram. Old underscore Barnwell. Anywhere else you want to direct them to? Um, if they are, want information, you know, they can uh, email me, Nick, at Old Barnwell. Being that this is mission-focused, I'm trying to get to know every prospective member, um, whether through golf or coffee or whatever. And so, so far, we've been able to do that. <laughs> um, I think there's been a lot more interest than I had uh, initially anticipated, you know, given that we haven't, I mean, this is, this is basically our coming out party right here. Uh, I'm talking to you. So feel free to reach out to me or to Morgan Purvis, Morgan at oldbarnwall.com. And yeah, we'll get back to you and give you any info that you need. Nick, I appreciate it. Like I said, thanks for taking the time. Nothing but good luck on the course and everything that, you know, you and the family have going on. I think thanks the so much, biggest buddy. thing. For us here is that, you know, we want to highlight people that are doing good things and what we can foresee is something that's going to be pretty special. And I think you definitely uh, a little pat on the back now for that. But I can't wait to see it in, in two years and see what this actually becomes. Thank you, Cody. I appreciate it.